You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. What we're going to do and talk about tonight is why are there so many Bible translations? Doesn't that sound like an exciting topic, right? I mean, everybody's just like, like, this is everything I've ever wanted to be a part of. All right, let me ask a question. Uh, what Bible translations do we have represented here? How many NIV folks do we have? NIV? Awesome. Uh, anybody ESV? ESV? Okay. How many KJV do we have? KJV, right? Uh, what else are we missing? New King James, okay. NKJV. New Living Translation, NLT. New American Standard. All right, you see why y'all have a hard time. We're all together. What do you got? You got all of them on your phone, right? Anything you want, right? You got in Spanish, you got in Dutch, you know, name it. Um, I want us to talk about it tonight because, uh, as we see in the, the next slide here, what, what's happening is, um, that's you. There you go. The very fact that we study the Bible in English implies that someone has already interpreted the original message into our language. Have you ever thought of that? Um, we are not reading this in the language that it was originally written in. And for that purpose, that means somebody made some decisions that you and I aren't even aware about, right? So if we go to the next slide, what we find is uh, the Bible, just as a reminder, is one narrative, right? Uh, it's one big story, right? It's two Testaments, the Old Testament, the New Testament, 66 books, 39 of the Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. Next slide teaches us this. There are 1,189 chapters in it. 31,173 verses, 773,692 words. Now those words are, were written in uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And we read them in English, and somebody has made some decisions on it. Uh, next slide. The Bible was written by kings to shepherds, scholars to fishermen, prophets to generals, tax collectors to doctors, and cupbearers to priests. So if you think about it, we've got kings like David, we've got shepherds, uh, also, oh, we've got kings like Solomon, shepherds like David, scholars, people like Paul, fishermen like Peter, uh, prophets like Isaiah, generals like Joshua, tax collectors like Matthew, doctors like Luke, cupbearers like Nehemiah, and priests like Ezra. We have all different types of people in it. Is this thing messing up again? Cut your pay, little girl. Okay. Um, so with this, we know that there is a difference between that all of these different people from very different walks of life, right? And yet it reads together as one beautiful narrative. The Bible was written over a 2,000-year span on three different continents and three different languages. Think about that. So you read Genesis through Revelation, you think about all the people and all the different things that went into that. Over a 2,000-year span on three different continents... By the way, none of those were North America, okay? And three different ang- languages, none of those were English. And yet, this is a picture of the scriptures that we have. Next slide uh, tells us the biblical sections. Let's look at these just as a reminder once again so we can include this. Next slide tells us about the way the Old Testament is broken down into the law, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy, those five sections that give us the law. History after that point all, from Joshua all the way to Esther telling us how well, after the time of Moses, those people did not keep the law and the trouble that they would get into. The writings from people like David and Solomon and uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, telling us how to live wisely in the midst of life. 
prophets uh, from Isaiah all the way to Malachi, major and minor, right? Major are just larger than the others, minor just smaller than the others, pointing to the people. In reality, if you remember, the prophets were not, here's a new word, it really kept going back to, here's the old, world, old word in the law. Remember, this is what God's word says. If we go to the next slide and look at the New Testament, <coughs> the New Testament is broken down into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, writing the same narrative but in different ways because they were writing to different audiences, right? Matthew writing to the Jewish people, Mark writing to the Romans, uh, Luke writing to the Gentiles, John writing to non-believers, very intentional. The book of Acts is that other narrative portion in the New Testament that talks about what did the disciples do after Jesus ascended into heaven. Then we have the letters or the epistles from Romans all the way to Jude, grouped together by all of Paul's writings, from the largest to the smallest. Then you get everybody else's writings, starting from Hebrew, going all the way down to Jude. These were letters to specific churches or specific people to be able to help them live for Christ in that time. And then we talk about the book of Revelation that was written as a letter from the Apostle John to say, here are the things that are coming down the line that are very, very different. So this is a reminder. Now, if we think about what Scripture teaches, I'm going to show you 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Let's look at that slide together because this is uh, two of the most, I guess, foundational verses on what Scripture is supposed to look like. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by who? God. And yet, if all Scripture is breathed out by God, but who wrote it? It's individual people. But we believe in this inspiration of the Holy Spirit working through the pens of human authors throughout history. So it's breathed out by God. And so we would say it's inspired by God, that breathed out. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now just think about that for a second. We're going to look at the four things it starts out with for a minute. But it says that the man of God, it also, once again, it's a translation thing. I do not think it's just saying that only men, this verse applies to, okay? This is all, all male, female, every person, that if you want to be a man of God or woman of God, you can be complete or mature, right? Equipped for how many good works? Every good work. So that what this word teaches me right here, first and foremost, is this. There is not a good work that God has called us to that Scripture does not teach us how to live. Okay? This is the promise of these verses to me. And why I think this is so important is that um, I have a pastor friend who once told me um, preachers shouldn't preach on marriage until they've reached their 25th wedding anniversary. And I thought, well, goodness gracious, i got a, got a little ways to go here. Okay, this is kind of important. And I thought, so I, I volleyed back and I asked the question. I said, so if you were to preach on marriage, what passages would you go to? He said, well, Matthew chapter 19. I said, okay, Jesus' words on marriage, got it. I said, where else would you go? I'd go to Ephesians chapter 5. I said, okay, Paul's example, blah, blah, blah. I said, so you mean to tell me, obviously, Jesus gets, gets a, a pass here, but Paul was a single dude, right? Yeah. I said, he was never married. They're like, well, yeah. I said, but you would go to him? You said that's like the best passage? Well, yeah, probably. I, yeah, I, I'd say Ephesians chapter 5 and go to Colossians. Yeah, that, that'd probably be the places I'd go. So you go to the scripture written by a single guy on how to be married, even though he was never married? Yeah, but you don't think anybody should be speaking about marriage until they've been married 25 years? 
Uh-huh. I said, okay. So follow this line with me for a little bit. What, and he said, what are you trying to get at? I said, how could Paul in, in the world have any authority to speak on marriage if he had never been married? Because all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's why. God was teaching him, so this was revealed word for us. So how could I, be, be honest with you, I thought the same thing. The first wedding I ever performed, I was the ever officiated the wedding for, was my roommate in college married Amanda's roommate in college before we got married, okay? So Amanda's roommate, my roommate, they got married, and I performed their wedding ceremony, and I was not married. And it was kind of funny, like, what am I supposed to do here? Like, what, you know, what am I going to speak to, right? What did I speak to? Anytime I would ever speak to marriage, I want to speak about the Word. And, and so we don't need 25 years of experience or 50 years of experience or something. Now, does that benefit us? Of course it does, folks. Of course it does. But what this verse is telling us, something very important, that what Scripture can do is equip us for every good work, is that God would not tell you that only experience is the true teacher. Okay? Now, is experience a teacher? Yes. Have you learned some things in your life, maybe along the way, thought, you know what, I'm starting to pick up some of these things? Hopefully we have, right? But if God would say, you know what, you're only going to get marriage right when you've done it for about 30 years, guess what that means for your poor spouse? <laughs> the first 30 years are going to be pretty rough, right? You really don't know anything about parenting until your kids are grown and gone. Well, that's depressing, okay, right? Okay, as soon as they're out, we go, well, I, if I had a chance to do it over, I'd completely do it over. But does Scripture speak to marriage, folks? Yes or no? Yes. Does Scripture speak to parenting? Yes. Does Scripture speak to finances? Every good work the Word of God teaches us in. So will experience come along and teach? Absolutely. Does overtime wisdom teach? Absolutely. But God does not set up our marriages to fail. God does not set up our vocations to fail. God does not say you've got to put in decades before you get it. He says, here's my Word to teach you along the way. Now, if we look at the next slide, what we'll see is that first phrase, teaching, teaching is all about this. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. Teaching is about telling us what's right, okay? Teaching is about telling us what's right. Here are the things that's right. Here are the things that you should do, you ought to do. So it tells us the right things in life for us to do. Um, one of the things that I, I love to do, I, um, this is probably my first year here, but um, it was after one sermon. I was kind of really nervous about it, but we went with it anyway. I set two microphones up at the uh, front of the sanctuary, and I did about a 20-minute sermon. You go, there's no way. I promise you I have proof. Um, it was about a 20-minute sermon, and then I said, it was all about the Word of God speaking into our lives. And I said, now what I'm going to invite anybody to do is you can come up to the microphone, and you can read the word over us. I don't want commentary on it. I don't want a testimony on it. You can't read more than two verses. And if you vary from that, we'll cut the microphone off. Okay. And so people just got up there and began to read the word of God over our church. Just verse after verse after verse after verse. And as you're reading, it's just God's word telling us, hey, here's what's right. Here's the right type of belief that Jesus is the Christ. Here's the right type of behavior, loving God, keeping his commandments. It tells us what's right. But it also says, in addition to teaching, is reproof. Reproof is teaching us what's what? Not right, okay? Teaching us, here's what's right. Reproof is, let me tell you what's not right, that someone is going to come alongside, and this is what the Word of God does, to tell us where we are actually off the mark, right? 
Let me ask you a question. Have you ever read the Bible and you come across something and you thought, uh-oh, I'm off there. Like, I, I, I'm guilty here. That, that's something that's, that's not right. And so reproof is someone who comes along and it tells us something that is not right in our life that we need to change. Uh, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1 says, Whoever hates discipline or whoever hates reproof is stupid. I love that Bible verse. Okay? If you hate reproof, if you hate correction, if you hate discipline and instruction, he goes, you're being dumb here. Why? Because we all need it, right? Every single one of us needs. And so sometimes what Scripture tells us is, here's the teaching aspect, what's right. Sometimes it comes across in reproof of what's not right. Let's look at the next one there. It also tells us about correction. This is how to make it right, right? So the Word of God is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. This is telling us how to make it right. So if you've ever royally blown it and done something very not so wise, Scripture says, now here's how you can come and make that right. Here's how you can come make restitution. Here's how you can come in and work for reconciliation. Uh, think about the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 where he says, If you're worshiping and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar, go get reconciled to your brother, then come back to the worship service. And that's something. But he's telling us, you got a problem with somebody, here's how to make it right. Here's some ways to, to see the correction take place. What do you need to do to make sure that you're actually making it right? And then the last one is training, how to keep it right, okay? How to keep it right. So this is training in godliness, training in righteousness, that over time, how to keep it right, how to keep going in the right direction. Because folks, I don't know if you're aware of this, but if we drift towards anything, it's drifting away from the Lord rather than to Him. So this is, how do you keep it right over time? How do you keep pointing closer to the ways of the Lord and doing what He's called you to do? So this is what Scripture does. All Scriptures, inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that we may be adequate, equipped for every single good work that there is. So let's look at this next section that the Bible is. Next, we, we learned this, that it is inspired, once again, it's breathed out by God. So if the Word is inspired, it's breathed out by God. So if you think about it this way, God is the author, and in this case, if we're looking at 2 Timothy, guess who else is the author? Paul is. Uh, God is the author, Paul is the author. Um, it's not as if Paul goes into a trance, right? He just gets all up in the spirit, and all of a sudden God starts moving his pen, and he has no thought whatsoever. That's not how this works. But there is something that takes place that God is inspiring, so what he writes down is a word from God contained in Scripture for us, we believe is breathed out by God. It is as if God has breathed in, whispered in someone's ear, in their heart, they can now turn and take that and know what to do, and they write it down. So it, yes, it is written by Paul, but it's also written by God. This is why it's also very important, as we've talked about, especially in First John with false teachers. There are a lot of books that are inspiring, right? Only one inspired, okay? A lot of books that are inspiring, only one book that is inspired. You probably have a favorite Christian author, I have my favorite Christian author is a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer. Uh, was a pastor in Chicago back in the 40s, 50s, and whatnot. Uh, I love, love, love reading his words because uh, he has such a rich way of opening up the scriptures and passionately pursuing Jesus 
that as a college student, it's just something about this man who had already passed away. It resonated with me. It's inspiring. But if you ask me to choose between Tozer or the Bible, I'm going with the Bible. You know why? All of Tozer's good stuff's coming from the Bible, okay? That's all it's doing. So the Bible is inspired. It's breathed out by God. There's other things that are inspiring. The next thing we know about the Bible is it's infallible, okay? Infallible means that Scripture is incapable of teaching what? Error. There is no failing, if you will. There is no falling in this word. It is incapable of teaching error. So with that, that means that our belief in Scripture is that God's word is true. 100%. It is the most truest thing we will ever read. And it is the word and the wisdom that we need for our life. <clears throat> so with this, if Scripture is incapable of teaching error, what do we come up with that if Scripture contradicts the way we believe or the way something else, some type of modern way of thinking is, what do we know? Well, Scripture's not wrong, right? So if anybody's going to be wrong, it's, it's going to be me. I'm going to be the one losing argument here. So we believe that Scripture's infallible. It's incapable of teaching error. And the last one is this, that Scripture is inerrant, which means the original translations contain no what? Error. There is, it's inerrant, no errors possible. And you go, What's the difference between infallible and inerrant? So we've got inspired, infallible, inerrant. Inspired is just breathed out by God. Infallible means it is truth. Inerrant means if you go all the way back, we believe what the original things were. We have to put all of our, our hope in the fact of what we had is accurate there. Okay? But then all of a sudden, there is this ground that we have to be aware of. And the reason why... I wanted us to at least end this course on this issue because the original translations contain no error. Now, you look at it, um, there is... Okay, let me just tell you all something, how, how bad this is. So on Fridays, I typically uh, am, since we homeschool our kids, I am in um, paper editing mode is what I, I go into, okay? So my wife is a teacher. I typically am the principal, but on Fridays, I am grammar Nazi. And as a grammar Nazi, I'm going around and correcting everything, and so I, the, the two things that I am trying to clarify for my boys right now are, are two things. Is one, Number one, split infinitives. You know what that is? Okay. An infinitive is a verb form that says something like to know or to read or to go. It's a to plus a verb. That's an infinitive. What we do in the English language is we always put uh, an adverb in the middle of it. To boldly go. Well, that split the verb up, if you will. Okay, so you need to say to go boldly. I'm just glad y'all were so excited about grammar. But and so I'm always telling them, you gotta be careful about the split infinitive, gotta be careful about the split infinitive. Then one day Eli said, Hey Dad, the Bible has a split infinitive. I was like, Okay, the English translation had a split infinitive, but the original language did not have okay. No, could there be a grammar mistake in the original translations or in our translations today? Sure there could be. But when inerrant means this, what's in there is we believe was what was inspired by God, written down by human authors, and we trust in the original form, which is why anytime there is a translation, we have to be careful of it, right? So let's look at this thought about what translation should look like. There's some different ways to look at it, and here is the first way. Um, the very fact that, once again, that you're reading the Bible in English means that you have already entered the process of interpretation. You may or may not have thought of it that way. But I'm going to show you some places that in the Bible, actually, someone's had to make a pretty hard call on does it mean this or does it mean that. Now, I will tell you this. In none of these places does it mean that 
oh, if the NIV is correct, we follow Jesus. And if it's New American Standard, that means that we can actually follow Jesus and whatever else. There's not a place like that. But there are some places that you have to be very careful of. The next slide, that someone translated the words that you were reading, and they had difficult decisions of which you were unaware. So there are certain things that they had to make hard and fast calls on. And when you look at them, you're going to be like, I'm glad that's not my job. Because you might think it's either boring or difficult, and there might be some reality to both of those. But the fact that someone has done that. Now, let's look at the different meanings that 1 Corinthians 7.36 can have just using alternate uh, definitions of the Greek word parthenio. Now, look, stay where you are. you got 1 Corinthians chapter 7 open up. This will be a really random verse for you to read, but I want you to look in your scripture, depending upon what you see, and read verse 36. Okay, Take a moment to find verse 36 and just read that word for a brief moment. Just so you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is responding to the Corinthian church about a letter that they wrote him. Paul, there's a lot of problems in our church because a lot of sexual immorality. What should we do? Not get married at all? He's like, actually, no. Get married, just do things God's way. And the middle of this chapter is talking about a lot of different stuff. Now, verse 36 may be something like, okay, why is this very important? I want you to look at the next slide here and look at these four different um, translations. Now, I'll show you this really quick. Um, over here is the original Greek word parthenos, okay? Um, does anybody know different than that? Am I read that better than me? Okay, good. It's parthenos. I'm sure. Um, it's always easy when you're like a church, you start talking Greek, like, that's oh, Greek to me. Okay, so this is the word, but I want to show you four different Bible translations and see if you think that these are different meanings, all right? King James Version, if a man thinketh that he behaveth himself uncomely towards his what? Towards his virgin. New American Standard Bible says, if a man think that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin what? Daughter. Or is that different? Very different. NIV, if anyone thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, that's a different person as well, I believe, okay? And then the ESV, if anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, person he's engaged to. Those are four of the leading Bible translations, and all four of those are talking about a different person. We fair there? First one is talking about just a virgin. Second one is talking about his virgin daughter. Third one is talking about a virgin he's engaged to. And the fourth one is just talking about someone he's betrothed to. Why is that? Because this word right here, Parthenos, can mean all four of those different things. The original language. So you ever go into a dictionary, and it says meaning number one is this, meaning number two is this, meaning number three is this, meaning number four is this. That's what those translators had to decide. Okay? So you read 1 Corinthians 7.36, and all you KJV folks and New American Standard folks and NIV and ESV, you're talking about a completely different thing here, right? Completely different thing. Now, um, what helps us in this moment? Well, I'll, be, I'll be straight with you. Um, I do not think that the first two are close to accurate just based on context, right? Hermeneutics, the key word we've talked about is context, context, context. There's nothing against those two translations, but in this specific situation, he's talking about the need for people to get married and behave rightly, and if you have needs, get it met with who you're married with, and, and if you're engaged, go ahead and get married. And if you're not married and you can stay single, just stay single. It, that, that's in the middle of that argument, right? So he's not talking about anyone's daughter. He's talking about one's own relationship. 
But I show that to say, here's an extreme case, but you realize this, there is a Greek word and someone had to make an English translation and an equivalent and someone made a call. We read it in English and it's something very, very different. Now that makes all of you go, oh, I gotta learn Greek. Okay, you know, like you, you wanna say it because now this probably raises some concerns, right? Now, once again, this is a, a rare exception, but I at least want you to see this kind of stuff is out there. Most of the time the consensus is is is, is accurate and we're in the right spot. Let's look at the next slide for a second. Because there's three types of translations that will help us understand what these things are, and we're gonna find out what yours is. Okay, here's the, the first one. Uh, the first one is called word for word, and it attempts to keep translation as close as possible to exact words and phrasing in the original languages. So it looks at if there is a word in Hebrew, we're going to find an equivalent in English, right? There's a word in Greek, we're going to find the equivalent. And so therefore, sometimes it doesn't flow as well. It sounds a little choppy. Uh, it may not sound as poetic, but it is accurate as closely as you can, right? And I'm gonna show you which ones are, are that here in just a moment. But the first group is called word for word. It attempts to keep the translation as close as possible. So if there's a word or phrase in the original languages, they're gonna to try to get you an exact equivalent to that. The next one is called thought for thought. It attempts to translate words and phrases into dynamic equivalents in the receptor language. Receptor means the ones that are receiving it. Okay, we're reading it in English, our receptor language. Thought for Thought attempts to translate words and phrases into dynamic equivalents in the receptor language. So it's not necessarily worried about word for word. They want you to get the impact of it, right? They want you to get the, the, the feel for it uh, deep down to make sure that you get it. I'll give you an example that came to mind. Uh, Romans chapter 6, uh, verses 1 and 2, he says, um, Paul says, shall we continue to sin so that grace may increase? He's basically saying the whole argument's been like, hey, the more we've sinned, the more grace God gave. So should we continue to sin so that grace may increase? And your translation probably says, by no means, <laughs> or may it not be so, or something like this. If you were to look at a different um, type of language or different book that was written in Greek at that time, some translations would use a curse word to be in, how emphatic Paul was saying at that moment. He was saying, shall we continue to sin so that grace may increase? Some other people would say, oh, heck no, we will, okay, or in a different way, all right? It, it was an emphatic phrase to say, absolutely not, you don't continue to sin, right? And our translations go, may it never be, okay? It sounds very nice and proper, and Paul was not being proper in this moment. He is really emphatically saying something. So thought for thought is, how do we translate what the author was really trying to drive at and word for word, while it's precise, sometimes you lose a little of the emotion behind what he's trying to say. Third is feeling for feeling, and that attempts to translate the feel of the text from one language to the other with less concern about original wording. This isn't word for word, this isn't thought for thought, this is just, let's get the feeling across, man. If, if the author's trying to get you to feel this, we're going to get you to feel this in your receptor language. Not really concerned about the original wording. You are not going to find a word for word. You're not even find a thought for thought. It's going to be trying to get a feeling for feeling approach on this. So <clears throat> I'm going to show you a chart that um, it's going to be a little hard for you to read, but just follow along with me, okay? Here is this chart. So here's the word for word, thought for thought, feeling for feeling. Word for word, because these are in there. Uh, New American Standard, 
ESV or the English Standard, which is what I typically preach from just because I like being really precise with the original language. And then also KJV and New Kings, New King James, <laughs> New King Jimmy version, New Kings James version. Okay, these are the way that these are word for word. Now we're going to speak about the KJV a little bit um, in a moment because there's a little difference there that we have to highlight. But these are word for word. You also see the interlinear, uh, the Amplified Bible, as well as the Revised Standard Version. Those are word for word. So. Uh, once again, I preach from the ESV. I contemplate from time to time changing, and there's another version that's kind of middle road that I, I've thought about going. But because I studied a lot of Greek in my seminary training, I just want to be really precise and I feel accurate with it. Sometimes the ESV and sometimes the New American Standard, it's accurate. It's a little clunky. Okay? It's just, it is. Um, and uh, sometimes, especially New American Standard and ESV, they're almost identical sometimes. Uh, but they are word for word. Then you go to thought for thought. Let me give you what that is. Uh, this one right here is called, the, in this chart, it's called Holman Christian Standard, or now it's uh, been simplified to the Christian Standard Bible. This is a Bible that a few years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention decided to put some um, translators together to get a, a good version that was in between this area right here, Okay. So um, that's the one that I contemplate jumping ship for, but I've memorized stuff in the ESV, and I, it, it's just hard for me to imagine uh, changing. It's kind of, I, I'm feeling like the people I used to, as a young man, I used to criticize people who got stuck in a translation, and here I am. Okay, um, and, and here, the biggest one for thought for thought is NIV. NIV was translated years ago uh, because of people struggling with the KJV or the New American Standard and wanting it to be relatable so that you could understand the thoughts a little bit. So the NIV is the closest one that you have um, to that. There's, all, there's a story, one of the main guys who actually funded the NIV, um, I think if the story is right, I, I try to remember his, and I can't remember his name, but the story was he went into a hotel, was at a low place in his life, was contemplating suicide, opened up the drawer, saw a Gideon's Bible, Gideon's Bible, though, how many of you know what translation the Gideons are typically in? King James Version. Why is it in King James Version? There's no copyright royalty fee to print it. That's the reason why. All these other translations, because they've been written or translated or updated in the last few years, copyright law is not there. There's no fee to translate the King James Version, while some of these newer translations, you have to pay all these different people. So that's why the Gideons typically will have to use KJV because it's a cheaper printing cost and all that aspect. But this guy checks into the hotel, is thinking about suicide. He's educated enough that he can read the KJV. He actually reads uh, parts of it. He uh, reads the plan of salvation in the back, receives Christ, and then decides what he's going to do. He, uh, in turn, starts funding the NIV so that people can actually read a translation they can understand. Because he knew he could, but he knew a lot of people couldn't. Um, uh, so NIV is kind of a thought for thought. When you get feeling for feeling, we are more into, we've mentioned a couple here, uh, the New Living Translation, which I think is a beautiful translation. Uh, when you read it, there are things in it that are just absolutely glorious. And then all the way over here is something called the Message, okay, which is very, very far on the end, uh, which is uh, some people go, and I'm going to give you a couple examples. It is, I don't even call it a translation, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Uh, a pastor named Eugene Peterson I think the first take was he was a pastor, I think, in Canada. He's preaching through Galatians. He didn't think his congregation would understand it, so he translated the book of Galatians in a way that they could understand it, and he preached from that. 
And then it caught on, and every book he would get to, he would do another book like that, another book like that, and it caught on, and eventually he did a translation. I, I consider it more a commentary, okay? And I don't think in a bad way. Sometimes I'm reading a passage going, this does not make sense. What did Eugene say about it, okay? And I read it because he gives you the feeling. He gives you the feeling. He's not going to give you the accurate what it is. Um, but you see this the scale here, the difference? So once again, um, most of us, uh, this is over here, this section really does, uh, it's more impacting in the simplest way of it. It brings about an emotive, kind of realistic, kind of gets you in the feeling sometimes. There's just ways to put it. This is more thought for thought, and this is just more accurate. And so you go, is there a right way? No, there's not necessarily a right way. In some ways, it's kind of like um, when some people say, I need to read a gospel. Which one do I want to go to first? I say, well, tell me about yourself. You know? Are you more like historical stuff? Do you like more action? Do you like more deep? Than what? Like, I'm going to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, depending on your personality. And so for some people who are very, I like getting the original meanings, but you want to go to the, more to the left. And some of other folks, you might go a little bit more to the right. Uh, and so all that makes sense. Any questions on that before we get a little bit more? Okay, next slide. Um, a note on the King James Version, okay? Um, this is not in your notes. This is just freebie, okay? Okay. Um, so a note on the King James Version. I'm going to show you a verse in Numbers 23, 22. I'm going to read it to you in KJV. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of an what? Unicorn. I'll read it again. Because you don't think I'm, you think I'm making this up, but it's numerous times in, in the Old Testament. God brought them out of Egypt. Now, first off, he hath. There's a lot of people that would struggle with that word right there, Right? Okay, some of you are like, it's easy. Not not everybody. Uh, King KJV is going to be more the the vowels and the these and the, those kind of things, and a lot of the verbs are kind of est on it or whatnot, and kind of. And now it's beautiful. It's poetic. It's the way a lot of us memorize scripture, right? Uh, some of us have certain things that you would say that you don't realize is KJV. You just heard it so much. But so because of words like hath are difficult. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of an unicorn. Now, what have all of you been taught about unicorns in your life? They're not real. But yet they're in the KJV numerous times. Why is that? I'm so glad you asked. So, um, uh, what does una mean, anybody? One. Corn means corn. Okay. Um, in some way, it, it means some type of horn, right, in this case. So, can you think of another animal that is real that might have a one horn? Anybody? Ostrich, rhino, different things like this. Is the scripture speaking of something like this? Most likely. I don't think KJV is believing that unicorns in the way that we think of them exist, okay? I don't, I don't think so. Um, but it, this reveals something very clear to you. Um, does that word represent what the original author was trying to get across the way that we read it in our receptor language? answer is no. Now, this is a blatant, like, we all say unicorns aren't even real. Unicorns in the KJV. What is that showing? There is a gap between what was originally written and where we are today as a culture, okay? The KJV, what's the challenge about it? Um, I don't know why this is, but some of you would, some of you grew up in a church that it was KJV only or else, right? Okay. Uh, I've been in certain places where if I'm preaching, they're like, Nick, are you going to preach from KJV? I'm like, I can find one. Okay, uh, I, I can do it. And there, and there's some people I have taught with people who are blue in the face, blue in the face. 
KJV is the Bible that Paul used. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> yes, it is. My pastor said when I was a kid, it's the one that Jesus used, the one that Paul used. It's KJV only. Any of these other translations are the devil's way of changing. No, 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 no. It's, it's in a different light. No, 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 no. In fact, one time I talked in, uh, in the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22. You guys will know this. It says if anybody adds to this prophecy or takes away... They're going to be accursed, right? And in the KJV, it says if you if you uh, change a jot or a tittle is the words that it uses. Okay, and and most of us would go, I don't know what that is, but okay, I won't do it. Okay, I don't know if I'm wrong for it, whatever. But people use that verse. It says, you see right here, it says don't change a, a jot or a tittle. And I go, what is that? I don't know. Okay, but you better not change it. And they say, so therefore, this translation is the translation. I'd say. You can read it in the NIV, and it says the same thing. Don't change anything from it. No, no, no. The KJV came before it. And I would say, well, what came before the KJV? This is the original language. No. The Bible was not written in English originally. It's not. And, and, and there's this, like, shock. And, like, what do you mean? Um, the, and, and if you haven't had a conversation like this, if you have, you know that I'm not making this up, okay? Uh, there are some people who are so just... I don't, it, sometimes denominations, sometimes people, sometimes families, they have been taught this is the only translation and every other translation is a distortion. Um, the KJV actually um, is not a very, it's not the most trustworthy translation. Here's the reason why. On every other thing, in fact, Gloria, let's go back here for just right here. Oh, my bad. Oh, yeah. Every translation on this, okay, Besides the KJV and the NKJV goes from Greek to English, okay? Or Hebrew to English. The King James Version goes Greek to Latin to English. And you go, is that a big difference? Well, now you're adding a second layer of language on it. So now you see what 1 Corinthians 7.36 did with just one language? Now you add a second language in between that. So there's a Bible that was written in Latin, and back in the 1600s, someone named King James decided, we want an English translation of the Bible. So what did he do? He did not go and get the Greek. He did not go get the Hebrew. He got the Latin Vulgate and everything they've been using, and they translate from the Latin to English. And these people were also supported by the government at that time. It was a government-funded translation. Is there anything wrong with the translation? No, there's not anything wrong necessarily. But you also see in just this one verse, right, of between two languages, the, the change it can make, you've just now added a third one. So just imagine, for example, if you go and you say, uh, I'm going to work with somebody and they speak a different language, trying to interpret that is very challenging, right? Now imagine you go, uh, Ernesto, can you translate for me? And then I'm going to tra translate over to Portuguese and then go to Ch Like, you can imagine, right, how conflicted it gets. That's what makes the King James Version so different in this situation. Now, let's really quick notice the difference in feel from these three types of translations using the same verse. And now we're going to go back out. Here, Glory, hit that next slide for me. Um, here's Psalm 63, 5, okay? ESV, this is word for word. You ready? My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. That's accurate. It is word for word, okay? Does that make anybody just want to jump up and joy? Okay, like, anybody thought, I'm, I love to be satisfied with fat and rich food. You're like, I don't, I don't know if that sounds right. KJV says, 
My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. Once again, you see these are word for word, even though KJV's got a middle language there. So look at NIV. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips my mouth will praise you. Do you see that a little bit more? It's more of a thought for thought here. Now we get feeling for feeling. I eat, I eat my fill of prime rib and gravy. I smack my lips. It's time to shout praises. Okay. Um, now... <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm picking up a message tonight. Okay, right? Um, now, with this, the first two, word for word accurate. You know what I'm saying? It, it is, there's a word here, there's going to be a word there. NIV is a little bit more, let's, let's not, let's vary a little bit from it, but get it. So they say the richest of foods. That, that does translate better to our culture. And the message is, you want to really translate? Let's talk about prime rib and gravy, okay? And, and so once again, is this a translation that you want to base your entire life on? No. But does that express what the psalmist was trying to get at? Yeah, it, it gives you the feeling. He's like, man, it's like a great meal. Like, I'm just smacking my lips saying, God, it is so good to us. Go to, go to the next slide. Um, if you look at the literal reading of John 12, 25, word-for-word translation like the ESV does, you notice that the translators even have to do some rearranging to have it make sense in English since the wording in the Greek is unique to English sentence constructions. What that means is this. I'm going to show you how Greek is written. It's going to blow your mind for a second. Hit that next slide. All right. John 12, 25 says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. All right. Let me show you this. Up here, this is the Greek, and then underneath it, is what the English, if you're to go word for word. I'm going to read this, the word for word translation, okay? The one loving the life, his, loses it. And the one hating the life, his, in the world, this in life, eternal, will keep it. That's the way the Greek is written. If you go word for word. So I, I show that. So this word right here, alto, is, is what his is. So it's this possessive kind of pronoun here. And it's pointing back to this goes in complete reverse order greek just is written that way it's not that john did anything wrong that's just the way they wrote it is that confusing anybody here now i say that to go once again if you got truly esv is about as word for word as you can get if your if your bible went word for word to be the one loving the life his loses it and the one hating the life his in the world this in life eternal will keep it that ain't moving anybody okay right it's just confusing me so with this someone's having to pull this together yes sir if you would really love me to. Ho felon te suke alto apalue altain ke ho mison tain suke alto into cosmo tuto ace zone aone ne fuleze altain. You have no you have no idea if it's correct. I kind of just literally making all that up. Okay, it's pretty close. It's pretty close. Okay, um, but with that, you, you see, this is so. There are some people once again, and there there are certain pages. Uh, I'll say this, Rick. Great question. If I'm in First John, I can open up First John and I can somewhat translate on the spot. But you see, I'm having to do this. Uh, God is His love. You're, you're you're piecing it together because it's just written differently. So that helps us understand when we're reading English, we're we're trusting somebody here. And we're trusting good people who know this a lot better than we do. We are trusting somebody. Um, here's, here's the ways, if you just look at the way these verses come together. ESV, whoever loves, loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. King James, he that liveth his life shall lost it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. NIV, anyone who loves their life will lost it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The message, 
Anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. Okay, so you see, same message getting across, but in a very, very different way. Next slide there. And that would be it. So with this, what is the um, exhortation to you? Pick a translation um, that you can understand well and be open that sometimes you may come up to a place that you say, I want to get another one and just read. You know, you mentioned you've got all these different translations on your Bible. Sometimes if it's confusing, look at it. Because a lot of times beside each other, you go, ah, that makes sense. But to realize this, that when you even begin to open up the process of hermeneutics, somebody's already done some of that work for you. And here's, here's what I love about even in some of these translation issues. Um, even the discrepancy in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about who that's talking to, does that change the fabric of Christianity depending upon who that's speaking of? No. This is a, a, a verse that has to do with how you apply a certain kind of way of thinking and whatnot. There is no place in the Old Testament or New Testament that some type of translation is hinged on, <gasps> is Jesus really the only way or not? There's nothing like that. There's some discrepancies here, but it helps us to know that the original authors had things they were thinking through. The translators look at it, and now we want to make sure we understand to the absolute best possible. So I hope this course has helped you, encouraged you to think through some things. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to be done. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for it. That it is power, that it is life, that it points us to truth. Help us to be people that know that your word is inspired for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness so that we can be adequate, equipped, mature for every single good work out there. Lord, help us be students of your word for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.